All right, welcome to the latest episode of the Columbia Basin Conservative Institute podcast. Josh and Ken here as usual. So anyone who either knows us personally or has been listening to the podcast knows that Ken and I have been harping on the Jones Act for quite a while. And uh, last week we had Congressman Dan Newhouse on the show and we did ask him about his thoughts on the Jones Act and we discussed specifically the local connection because we're obviously an Eastern Washington-based podcast and the namesake Senator Wesley Jones represented Washington State in the 1900s and actually lived in Yakima. But um, Ken and I have been threatening to do a deep dive on this topic, as I mentioned, since we started the podcast. And I think we could have done a serviceable job discussing what it is and why we don't like it. But we decided why not invite a real expert onto the show. So I'm pleased to welcome Colin Grabo to the show. Uh, Colin is a research fellow at the Cato Institute and focuses on domestic forms of trade protectionism, such as the Jones Act and the U.S. Sugar Program, which I'd also love to discuss and dive into Marco Rubio and why he's wrong there. But um, Colin, thanks for coming on the show. Well, guys, thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Well, so about two months ago, George Will wrote a column in the Washington Post uh, discussing the Jones Act, and he, he specifically mentioned your work and the Cato Institute's work on this topic. So my, my first question for you is, what was it like to have someone of George Will's caliber, you know, a, a living legend in the world of conservative thought, referencing your work in the Washington Post? Yeah, that, that's an obvious, it's, it's a thrill, uh, both because it's George Will and then, and then also that he's using his, his platform to try to educate Americans about this topic. You know, I think it speaks to, I like to think that, you know, the rising prominence of this issue is receiving. I think more and more people are becoming aware that the Jones Act is a problem and it's, it's completely ridiculous and something needs to be done about it. So the Cato Institute published a book called The Case Against the Jones Act, which I'm holding up. It's an audio podcast, so I don't know why I need to do that. But um, it's a collection of essays from different scholars. Uh, It was edited by you, Colin, and along with a a colleague, a former colleague of yours, Inu Manik. Um, So, Colin, you you authored several of the essays in this book. And um, it was actually the book club selection for our organization last month. So if you noticed a spike in sales and got a little extra residuals of mailbox money, then, uh, you know, you're welcome. But um, so I, this book actually sat on my shelf for a little while, but I brought it with me on vacation to Maui back in October because it was the perfect, perfect book for that trip because it was highly relevant, you know, obviously Hawaii being a non-contiguous part of the United States, but also because of the wildfires that were there in October that devastated Lahaina. And it seems that when disaster strikes is when the Jones Act really seems to twist the knife. So we we really want to get into the intricacies of this issue. But just for the sake of our listeners who don't have this uh, obscure obsession with cabotage laws like uh, Ken and I do, um, we want to get the basics of Jones Act 101. So, Colin, what is the Jones Act? So first of all, yeah, what is the Jones Act? Um the Jones Act is Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Uh, it basically says if you want to transport goods by water between two parts of the United States, two points is the exact terminology, you have to use a vessel that meets four conditions. Uh, the vessel has to be U.S. flagged and registered, so uh, can't be you know foreign flagship. It has to be built here in the United States. It has to be at least 75% owned by Americans. And it has to be uh, at least 75, it has to be accrued by Americans. So, you know, a lot of people hear that and they think, well, that sounds pretty good. You know, uh, what could, who could be against an American build, American crude shit with an American flag on it? Uh, what kind of monster are you? 
Um, and, you know, the problem with the Jones Act, the short version, is that uh, it makes shipping very, very expensive because American shipyards are not very good at building ships, or they do so very inefficiently at high expense. And our ships are pretty expensive to operate uh, relative to foreign ships. So that adds up to pretty expensive shipping, which is a real problem. You mentioned Hawaii. Obviously, they're dependent on shipping. But this is a big country. You know, this is a country, you know, it takes five hours to more to fly from coast to coast. Um, so, you know, having efficient transportation is really important to overcoming those distances and, and enabling trade between, you know, we talk about international trade, but trade between Americans. And the Jones Act really gets in the way of that. You know, sad to see protectionism, more broadly speaking, but the Jones Act uh, seemed to gain some purchase on both sides of the aisle, unfortunately. Um, and so I guess, you know, my, my question before we get into the laundry, laundry list of why there's a number of challenges with the Jones Act, and you know, again, certainly Josh and I have uh, touched on some of those over the few months we've been having the podcast here, but I just wanted to get maybe you, if if you're willing to do this, um, could you kind of steel man the Jones Act? Why? Why yeah. are, are, what are the proponents talking about, uh, about for it? Um, you have the, the American Maritime Partnership, I think, uh, referred to it as a time-tested American security law. Uh, uh, which, you know, prevents us from being reliant on uh, foreign vessels. So it, is that working? What, what What's sort of the best case of, of why the Jones Act is working today? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Obviously, we can spend a lot of time here just sitting around dumping on the Jones Act, but I think it's also important and useful to, to make the case for it. And, and there is another side. What do they say? What are the arguments for the Jones Act? You know, why do we have this law? So the arguments, if I was a representative from the American Maritime Partnership that you referenced, I think I'd make an argument along the lines of the following. Um, so I went through the requirements of the Jones Act earlier. So the U.S. flag requirement, you have to use an American ship. Well, that means, theoretically, that in time of uh, war or national emergency, there is a fleet at the ready that the American military can use uh, to transport supplies and equipment uh, wherever they're needed in the world. The U.S. crew requirement means that we have trained American mariners who can uh, crew those ships so we don't have to rely on foreigners. And not only those commercial ships, but also the government maintains a fleet of uh, sea lift vessels of cargo ships. Then they can also crew those ships for the, for the government. Um, the U.S. build requirement means that we maintain uh, a base of shipyards that have obvious value in times of war. Uh, they can you know, build new ships uh, from scratch or repair existing ships. Uh, those are important things to have. So I think that's essentially, you know, there's some ancillary arguments, but those are the main ones you'll, you'll hear. So, you know, someone may hear that and think, well, that all makes sense. So what's the case against it? Why, why am I nonetheless in opposition to this law? And that's it. When I think if you look at each one of those things, you look at the stated kind of intentions and then you look at the actual results, the law falls um, pretty short. So let's start with the build requirement. Uh, you have to build ships here in the United States. So that means we have a lot of shipyards, right? A lot of shipbuilding going on here. Uh, and we don't. Uh, this year, there was one ocean-going Jones Act ship delivered. Uh, now, there are you know smaller vessels like, you know, ferries, barges, tugboats, things of that nature built. But in terms of large ocean-going ships, the kind of thing you would need in time of war, we built one this year. Uh, last year, there was one delivered. The year before that, there were zero. Next year, we're on track for zero. 
I think 2025, zero, 2026, one, 2027, two. Uh, so this is not anomaly. Over the last 20 years or so, I think on average, uh, around three ocean-going Jones Act ships are, are delivered uh, per year. To put that in perspective, Hyundai in South Korea, I think they were scheduled to build 47 ships this year. That That's one shipyard in one country, you know, and this is all U.S. shipyards combined. Uh, so the idea that we're producing a lot of ships, um, it doesn't hold up. Uh, furthermore, just, just practically speaking, okay, let's say a war does occur and the government orders, you know, how we need to build some new ships. How fast can they be built? Well, the last Jones Act ship, the one that was delivered this year, supposed to be delivered, I think, in 2020. Uh, it ended up taking something like three and a half years to build, something like that. Uh, this is not terribly unusual. I think the average uh, time to build a Jones Act container ship is something like 30 months. Um, so it better be a long war. And that's from the time you just start laying the keel. I mean, there's other work that goes in before they get, get all the materials together and whatnot. And then the materials themselves used to build the ships. Yes, they're assembled here in the United States, but they use they use uh, plenty of foreign components. So the idea that, okay, you know, maybe we pay more for these ships, but then we get more. We get that security of not being reliant on foreigners. Oh, we're absolutely reliant on foreigners. Uh, you know, there was an executive from a leading U.S. shipyard that said a few years ago, said over half the components, we use like a million parts in a ship and over half of them are imported. Uh, and not just, you know, small things like, you know, screws. We're talking about the engine, the propeller, uh, things of that nature. So the idea that the Jones Act frees us of a dependence on foreigners, it just doesn't hold up. Uh, then obviously you need the ships themselves. Well, how's that working out? Uh, back in 1980, there were 257 ships in the Jones Act fleet today, Last, uh, according to the latest statistics, which, which are accurate as of April, I think, we were, they were down to 93. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of encouraging the development of a fleet. More practically speaking, uh, also, Jones Act ships don't get used in times of war, um, certainly in recent decades. Um, this is for a very obvious reason. If, if the ship is normally going out to Hawaii carrying goods and you say, no, 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 you need to carry supplies from the military. Well, who's going to take goods to Hawaii? Um, and there's not any spare capacity in the system. So um, again, the Persian Gulf War back in 1991 uh, and, and Desert Storm in 1990, uh, or Desert Shield, there was one Jones Act ship that was used to transport supplies from the U.S. mainland to Saudi Arabia. Um and then I think two years ago, the head of U.S. Transportation Command testified before Congress. He was specifically asked about the use of Jones Act ships. And he said, look, when we run our war games, we don't really count on Jones Act ships. Uh, so I think that that's yeah, I could go on, but I think you get the point. And then lastly, we have the Mariners uh, themselves. Well, you have fewer ships. That also means you have fewer Mariners, um, you know, back. Uh, so I think. The U.S. government, a study a few years ago, uh, calculated they need somewhere in the neighborhood. Or they have something like 11, between 11 and 12,000 trained mariners. They think that forms the pool. Well, out of those, less than 30% are Jones Act uh, mariners, guys that work on Jones Act ships. So they're, they're a minority there. And then to the extent we do generate these, I think there's something like 3,300 mariners the extent we generate that we just do so incredibly inefficiently. We can do this kind of stuff through alternate means like direct subsidies and, and say, um, we want U.S. ships. We say, okay, we'll pay you X amount of money per year uh, so, you're, so you help you stay in business. And then time of war, we get the right to use your ship. In fact, we do this right now. There's something called the Maritime Security Program, which pays a $5.3 million stipend 
the 60 ships, these are non-Jones Act ships. These are flags with a, they have a U.S. flag, but they're foreign built ships. These are American ships with American crews that are prohibited from uh, transporting goods in the United States because they're built overseas. And that's the primary source of commercial sea lift for our military. So basically, long story short, I think by any reasonable metric, the Jones Act is not matching up against those promised benefits. And to the extent it does generate benefits, I think we can do so far more efficiently through alternative methods. Yeah, well, I I think you touched on (laughs) uh, a ton of our following questions. I was sitting here checking off little questions I had, but... just one one final chance, I suppose, to give the Jones Act or, or uh, folks touting it as success uh, a bit of benefit of the doubt here. Um, the American Maritime Partnership, or have they just not been exposed to kind of the case you laid out, or or what's perhaps the retort? Because it doesn't sound like the numbers are, are necessarily on their side. Um, you used theoretically a number of times in your uh, case for the Jones Act, um, so. You know, I'd like to think we're all rational human beings. Have they just not been exposed to the numbers that you laid out here? Or what What would be kind of their retort to that? I, I assume you've chatted with uh, opponents and proponents. So uh, what, yeah. Well, what I what I found, unfortunately, is that trying to directly engage with some of these folks is, is difficult. They don't want to have these uh, debates. Mm-hmm. Um, they, In fact, I remember several years ago, I was invited to speak before the National Caucus of Hispanic State Legislators, they were voting on a resolution on the Jones Act, uh, opposing the Jones Act. I think it was, it was introduced by uh, someone uh, with a Puerto Rican background. That was kind of their, why they cared about it. Yeah. And they wanted to uh, present legislators from both sides of the issue, have a pro side and anti side, so they can kind of you know, uh, get some information before they voted on this thing. And I showed up and there was no pro side. And they said, look, we reached out. We just we couldn't find anyone. I know here wow. at Cato, um, back in 2019, 2018, uh, we had a, co- a day-long conference, and w- it, w- it culminated with a debate, and we found someone to defend the Jones and give the other side, and it was pulling teeth trying to find someone. I reached out to folks like the American Maritime Partnership and some of these pro-Jones organizations, and they just don't want to have it. Um, I think that's instructive. Um Obviously, I'm a little biased here, but that's kind of how I see it. Uh, and I think a lot of the arguments they use are, are pretty fallacious, um, to be blunt about it. Um, so, you know, yeah. So, but if I'm trying to steel man this, you know, do the best job yeah. I can, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the counterpoints are something like this. Well, absent the Jones Act, we'd have even less. You know, you mm. say it's not doing a very good job. Well, it goes to zero. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing. Um, and yeah, okay, American shipyards. No, it's not because of Jones Act um, protectionism. The reason they fall short is because of unfair uh, subsidies given to foreign shipyards, so they put them mm-hmm. at a disadvantage. Um, yeah, th- things of this nature. Um, I think more than anything, it tends to be well. Uh, things okay, things are not great, but they'd be even worse without the Jones Act. Well, if if you're a fan of the Jones Act, I just want to say. You can't say we didn't try. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> well, and and I'll uh, you know playing devil's advocate one more time here. So as far as the U.S. Yeah. U.S. flagged requirement, and you know that not just having a U.S. flag because you know that's just symbolism, but um, you know following regulatory requirements and you know being subject to inspection by that state and the safety standard and such. Any concerns with the idea that hey, we'd have all these foreign vessels going port to port and they're not subject to um, our safety standards and that poses risks on our shores where our Coast Guard would be responding 
any validity to that or do we just have those ships going around all the time anyway? Uh, so this is an argument you hear sometimes, and it's something along the lines of, of what you said. And basically, uh, can we trust these foreign ships, you know, um, these shoddy foreign ships uh, going and polluting our waters and posing risks to us, um, uh, you know, unregulated things of this nature? And it's just, it's just not true. Um, the choice before us is not do we let foreign ships in our waters or not? They're already here. Uh, U.S. ports, if you go to Port of Seattle or Tacoma right now, uh, you know, it's filled with foreign ships. Uh, that's going to be the majority of ships. They go up and down our coastlines. Um, you know, in fact, several years ago, the Congressional Research Service published a, uh, a study in which they uh, referenced all these ships that go. Not only do they come into our ports, they'll go to additional U.S. ports. So, for example, a ship will go from, your, you know, say, Rotterdam into New York, and then it will go down to Baltimore or a port in Virginia, and then down to uh, you know Wilmington or Jacksonville, Miami, and then finally go to uh, another foreign port. And what they're doing is they're dropping off goods that originated, say, in Europe, and picking up goods meant for export to other countries. What they're not doing is you know taking transport goods between those U.S. ports, but plainly there's an opportunity there. And this report basically referred to this as a conveyor belt you know, along our coast that. Americans are denied access to. So the choice before us is not, do we let foreign ships in our waters or not? It's, can we use them or not? Furthermore, the idea that, you know, these ships enter U.S. waters and they kind of do what they like, that's just not true. Uh, they are absolutely subject to U.S. environmental regulations. Uh, the U.S. Coast Guard has the authority to stop all these um, ships and inspect them. So, you know, if someone wants to make the case that, you know, they need more resources to do their job, I'm open to that. Um, but there are laws in place um, to prevent that. Furthermore, foreign ships tend to be newer um, than American ships. And, and, and the age of the ship is a rough proximity. It's not a perfect one uh, for what condition uh, the ships are in. Uh, U.S. ships, I don't think I've mentioned the statistic yet. You know, U.S. ships are incredibly expensive. Um, they're four to five times more expensive. I'll give you a concrete example. That one Jones Act ship that was built this year, it costs over $225 million. A similar size ship uh, with a, roughly the same cargo capacity was built in South or ordered in South Korea two years ago for $41 million. Um, so, you know, we're looking at roughly a 5X difference right there. So when you make ships incredibly expensive to buy, that means people kind of hold off on replacing their existing ships. And they hold on to them as long as possible so they can delay having to bite the bullet and, and, and buy a new ship. Uh, so in contrast, um, you know, overseas in the international fleet, ships tend to be used sometimes 15 to 20 years. I think average is maybe more 25 to 30 years. Um, Jones Act ships, I did a calculation, like the last 18 Jones Act ships that were scrapped or removed from the fleet were an average of 43 years old. Um, so, you know, that that's, so we have, we have older ships. Uh, which again tends to, you know, if you have something old of almost anything, it's not in your cars, whatever. It's not the newest, latest, uh, most efficient uh, vessel out there. So if anything, it probably runs in the opposite direction that foreign ships are are, are, are going to be more efficient um, than the Jones Act ships that we have. So one of the areas that really makes me like want to pull my hair out is liquefied natural gas and so um and, and propane so you know we are one of the largest producers if not the of 
liquefied natural gas and, you know, look at areas like Texas where they are churning it out. Um, what can you tell us about the ability to distribute that and where that is going, where we're exporting it and how the Jones Act comes into play? Yeah, so this is, like you said, maybe the most, one of those notorious examples of, of the Jones Act disrupting American commerce. As, as you mentioned, the United States is a leading exporter of LNG. I think uh, since we began exporting it in something like 2015, 2016, we've exported to some 30 some countries, uh, you know, as far away as, you know, China, Spain, Japan, all over the place. But we can't send it to other parts of the United States, uh, most notably New England, um, which imports, I don't know, 10 dozen cargoes per year. But And also Puerto Rico, which relies on natural gas for 40-something percent of its electricity generation. Um, why? Well, it's because we don't have the ships to move it. There are zero specialized liquefied natural gas carriers that comply with the Jones Act. Um, now, someone may hear that and think, okay, Colin, this seems like an easy problem to solve. Um go build the ship, put some Americans on, American flag, you're in business. Well, the math doesn't make any sense. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article, I think 2019, that said at the time to build one of these LNG carriers over in Asia was $180 million. And the estimated U.S. price was $700 million. So you know, we're looking at you know $520 million delta there to build that ship. And also it would take, it would take uh, much longer because we haven't built one of those ships uh, since 1980. So you know, American shipyards don't have any experience doing this. In fact, there was a GAO study a few years ago kind of looked at what would it take to build one of these ships in the U.S. And one of the shipyards that they talked to said, we'd have to bring over a bunch of Koreans to teach us how to do it and kind of manage the process. Um, so we don't have the ship. So then we have the absurd result where we're importing something that we have in abundance here. Uh, most notoriously, we in 2018, Boston imported a cargo that had Russian natural gas. Uh, Puerto Rico has imported natural gas, at least tw- Russian natural gas, at least twice. Um, February of last year, the same time that Russia was invading Ukraine, uh, Puerto Rico had a cargo of Russian LNG come through. Uh, it was actually, it didn't come directly from Russia, it went through Spain, and then it was, Spain doesn't produce any natural gas, is loaded in Spain, and sent over. Uh, I actually noticed that a few months ago, um, or rather recently, Puerto Rico imported another cargo from Spain. At the same time, there was an LNG tanker going from the Gulf Coast to Spain. I mean, it, just, it makes no sense. And then you brought up, it's not just natural gas, it's propane. There's liquefied uh, LPG and uh look at petroleum gas and like hawaii they um i was on a website last night um uh, looking at uh, they will show you all the different ships that arrive in different u.s ports this is a totally normal thing that people do with their free time and it showed that you know uh this year there have been at least two ships that have come from Trinidad and tobago to hawaii with propane and we've got it coming out our ears you know we are the world's leading exporter of propane and so there's this talk about, well, the Jones Act is a very pro-American uh, um, law that, you know, it's Americans with American ships. And the reality of it, I'd submit it's a very anti-American law that gets in the way of Americans doing business with other Americans. And there's these extreme cases of LNG and LPG. Americans flat out can't get American products. And, you know, I'm normally in this position at Cato where I'm arguing for free trade. Hey, guys, imports are not your enemy. They're, you know, they contribute to your economy. And here I'm saying, guys... You know, I'm not saying you have to buy you have to buy the American product, but you should at least have the ability to get it if you want it. You know, that should be on the table. 
So yeah, this is it's it's totally absurd. What what more can you say about it? Yeah, and I I think you know we heard a lot about the importance of domestic steel uh, last few years certainly, and um, what is it? I think it's less expensive to send our steel to Turkey than it is to ship it to the other side of the United States. Yeah, there was uh, there was some hearings um, in Congress about the Jones Act in the late '90s, I believe. And there was someone from the American steel industry that testified and said, yeah, if, uh, you know, a lot of um, steel mills, they use scrap metal to, to make their steel. And he said, it's, 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 um, it's cheaper to send steel all the way to Turkey than to another American port. Um, there was actually another, there was a government report done by the U.S. International Trade Commission back in the 80s. And it looked at this issue, basically looking at why Western states uh, such as you guys out in Washington, why were they buying so much of their steel? Why were they importing it instead of buying, say, from East Coast uh, steel producers? And it flat out says in the report the Jones Act is one of the reasons. Um, this is the transportation costs, you know, that undermines the competitiveness of this American product. Uh, I'll give you another example. Um, this speaks to uh, so, so another idea is that while American ships they use American steel. Um, well, not no, not always. Uh, there's they can use uh, foreign steel provided it comes in standard mill sizes. In fact, uh, in 2015 or so, uh, the an executive from the Philadelphia shipyard he said that he looked into buying steel from South Korea and he, he got a quote and it was like twelve to fourteen thousand dollars to ship it on an international um, ship, and then he got a quote from an American U.S. flagged um, ship to ship it. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll charge you $300,000 and we're not even going to take it to Philadelphia. We'll drop it off in Delaware and then you can truck it up. Um, so A, this speaks to the expense of U.S. shipping and you know, the lack of competitiveness. And B, it also speaks to the idea that, again, this, this, this reliance on, on foreigners and the idea that, okay, the Jones that costs more, but then we don't, we're not dependent on others. Oh, yeah, again, that's a total illusion. Yeah, it, we're... We're clearly just embargoing ourselves, and it seems like it would be comical if it if, if it weren't so serious. But um, we, you touched a little bit on the shipbuilding industry and uh, you know the lack of orders, frankly, and, and the high cost. So why why is there the protectionism there around? I mean, I, I guess my the the more succinct question would be. Are the shipbuilders in favor of the status quo when they're only cranking out one or two of these at best a year? And yeah, because they're not getting. Yeah, no, right. (laughs) Well, and maybe even a better question is why are Jones Act vessel operators in favor of this? You'd think that, okay, that obviously they like the U.S. flag requirement, uh, but they'd like to get their vessels at lower cost. Um, So. Uh, and then maybe another possible question is why are U.S. ships so expensive in the first place? Uh, why are they so uncompetitive? So I'll try to unpack that a bit. Um, starting off with actually the last question first, you know, why are they so expensive? Um, a lot of it has to do with economies of scale. Uh, so so shipbuilding is a very capital intensive industry. You, know, you have big, huge pieces of equipment. You know, ships are massive. Like I said earlier, a million parts. So you need, for example, big cranes to, to you know, a lot Ships are the way they're built. They're built in blocks, they're kind of like Legos, then then assembled in these blocks. Um, and you need cranes to transport those blocks and put them into place. And um, you know, if you're building 
one, two ships a year and you have these high capital investments, you know, you get, you're spreading those, those fixed costs over just a few ships. But if you're building, you know, 40 ships a year and spreading all those fixed costs over 40 ships, that's a totally different ballgame. Also, you know, when the shipyard says, okay, we need to order 20 engines, well, he's going to get a very different price than the guy that orders two engines. Or the guy says, I need enough steel to build 40 ships versus the guy that says, I need enough steel and so on. So there's that. There's also just the plain old, um, you know, lack of, uh, you know, a pr- industry shielded from competition is then, you know, doesn't doesn't have to compete, becomes uncompetitive. That That's also almost axiomatic, you know. And then also there's a lack of specialization. Um, a lot of countries, a lot of shipyards tend to focus on certain ships. Uh, for example, you know, Finland, they, they've built something like 60% of the world's icebreakers. And, uh, you know, the Europeans, Germans, uh, French, Italians, they built like 90% of the big cruise ships out there. And the South Koreans have built like 60, 70% of the world's liquefied natural gas carriers. And Americans... They're kind of, you know, jack of trade, master of none. And they've gotten themselves in this, this situation where they're caught in this cost quantity trap where they don't build a lot of ships. So the price goes up. Well, that, you know, depresses demand further. So they build even fewer ships and, the, you know, the economics get even more screwed up. So, you know, at the time the Jones Act was passed back in 1920, a U.S. built ship was like between 20, 20% roughly more expensive than one built abroad. And now we're, you know, three to 400%. Um, things are totally out of whack. But then to get more to your questions, you know, so why do the, why do the shipbuilders, you know, if you go to the Shipbuilders Council of America w- website, you'll find a section devoted to the Jones Act and why it's great. Um, I think they like the idea that you have to buy something that, that they make. Um, that, that, that's, that's good for them. Uh, frankly, for a lot of them, especially those that build big ships, the Jones Act is like a sideshow for them. The real money is in uh, Navy contracts and building for the government, building Coast Guard, Navy, the occasional ship for NOAA, um, National Oceanographic, Oceanographic um, and Atmosphere Administration, uh, you know, research vessels, things like that. Uh, in terms of revenue, I know back in 2019, government contracts were like 78% of industry revenue. I mean, that's, that's what's really driving things and keeping them going. Oh, oh, then about the vessel operators, you know, why, okay, why don't they rebel against this thing? So this is where things get really cynical. So their attitude is, well, um, if we move to a system where you could buy ships at one quarter, one fifth the price, well, then some guys are going to come along and buy ships at a fraction of what I paid for my ships, and they're going to drive me out of business. So that's one big concern. And number two, having expensive ships is a barrier to entry. Uh, you know, if you're in the Hawaii trade, you know, if you look around these these uh, non-contiguous states and territories like Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico. There's a duopoly in each of them. In Puerto Rico, there's two companies that have 85% of the container capacity. In Hawaii, two companies have like 90-something percent of the capacity. In Alaska, it's also like 90-something percent. And making, you know, paying outrageous prices for new ships, that's a real barrier to getting in the game. Uh, Say, contrast this with, say, the aviation market where you want to start up a new airline. I mean, it's not easy, but you can do it. You can go out and lease. You don't have to buy new airplanes you can lease existing airplanes um you can't do that there are no there are no jones act ships just kind of sitting around for someone to go lease and get in the game so you have to go buy the ships uh you gotta build them it takes years 
And then you got to hope things work out. And if they don't, what are you going to do with those ships? You can't sell them on the international market. No one's going to be interested in buying them. So it's it's a real barrier to competition um, for them. So yeah, it's 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 completely screwed up. But there are some logical reasons why this dysfunction continues when you look at the 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 self interest of each of those groups. Joe, you got a lot of follow on questions for that, but I, I think I'm going to transition a bit to. Um... Something I think so. I can already hear some of my protectionist uh, acquaintances uh, responding more or less along the lines of, uh, "So what if it's costing some monopoly hat wearing capitalists uh, a bit more at the end of the day? Um, you know, this is for workers. Uh, this is for national security reasons. So what is what is the Jones Act actually costing, or what are the impacts being felt by, we'll say, everyday Americans?" And then on that, I know you've talked a lot about how the Jones Act also has um, environmental costs even. So something that's not necessarily directly, you don't directly think about climate as it pertains to the Jones Act or or the environment. What are some just lesser known or, 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 you know, uh, things that come up, costs that come up related to the Jones Act that wouldn't be apparently obvious to someone looking at this for the first time? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So obviously we've been... I've been going on and on about, you know, expensive Jones Act ships are and, and, you know, ridiculous things like LNG. So, you know, logical follow-up questions. Yeah. What is this costing us? You know, um, can you quantify this? And it's very difficult because, you know, this is transportation and transportation affects everything has so many knock-on effects. I mean, one logical way of, of, of trying to do this, you'd say, okay, so there are 90 some Jones Act ships out there. We'll ignore all the smaller stuff, you know, um, tugboats and whatnot. Uh, so presumably, you know, you can look at what foreign shipping costs and look at the what Jones Act shipping costs and you take that delta and multiply it out across, you know, um, 90 some ships and that's more or less your cost. But you're only really scratching the surface there because uh, you have to think about all the opportunity costs that come along with the Jones Act. Um, Jones Act ships are only used by and large uh, where there's no alternative form of transportation. So that's why I say... I think there are like 23 container ships in the Jones Act fleet. All of them are used in the non-contiguous states and territories. There, are, there is no container ship that you can transport goods from, you know, Boston to, to Miami or Houston or something like that. You know, good luck. There, there are no ships. Um, they, don't, they don't do that. So that means more congestion on our highways. Uh, we've taken what should be a very efficient method of transportation, especially over long distances. We've taken that off the table. So that means more demand for trucking, more demand for rail. That means, you know, more congested highways, you know, here on the East Coast, you know, I-95. Um, that means more pressure on that. That's more pollution. You talked about the environmental angle. You know, um, ships are a very CO2-friendly means of moving goods from point A to point B. Uh, but we've kind of, you know, again, uh, rendered that a non-option. So, in fact, a few years ago, we had uh, Cato, we released a study on the environmental uh, effects of the Jones Act and the cost. It was authored by a professor um, in, in, named Tim Fitzgerald, and he calculated the cost anywhere from like $160 million up to several billion dollars, uh, depending on what assumptions you, know, you use. Uh, because the pollution, not only do we have you know, more land side congestion, and also, by the way, highway maintenance, but then also the ships themselves would be, absent the drones, they would be newer and more efficient, less polluting uh, as well. 
So there, there are costs there. There's so many opportunity costs. You have to think, what are all the domestic supply chains that could be unlocked if it was easier for Americans to do business with other Americans? And figuring out that opportunity cost is the really difficult exercise. So there are a few hints about what the Jones Act costs. Um, there have been a few studies that have looked at, say, Puerto Rico, uh, and their calculations have been anywhere from like, you know, $650 million to one point something billion dollars. Uh, Hawaii, there was a study done a few years ago that was um, paid for by the Grassroots Institute of Hawaii to calculate the cost of $1.1, billion, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, the GAO did a study back in the 80s just looking at Alaska, and they calculated that the U.S. build requirement just by itself imposed costs of several hundred million dollars to Alaskans. It was an amount they calculated was equal to like 2% of Alaskans' personal income. Um, so, And then the OECD several years ago released a study they calculated that if we repeal the Jones Act, the U.S. economy would expand by something like, I want to say, 16 to $64 billion, something like that. But the sad truth is I think no one really knows because you got all these costs, you have to aggregate them. And the, what's unfortunate is the U.S. government has not even tried to estimate the cost of the Jones Act. The U.S. International Trade Commission releases a report periodically called like the impact of significant U.S. import restraints. They look at all kinds of protections policies and break them down and look what the cost is and try to aggregate that. Well, they, they came out with a study, I think in the early 90s, it said the Jones Act was set like $9.8 billion a year. And then in subsequent editions, it always went down. And every time they released it, the Jones Act lobby would scream and say, no, your methodology is wrong. In fact, the GAO did a study to look at their methodology to see if they were doing anything wrong. And in 2002, it had gone down to $656 million, which I, I find absurdly. And since then, they just threw their hands and said, we're done with it and no more. So we're not even trying to shed light on it. But then you asked about what are lesser known costs. And here's another one I think people don't think about. So the Jones Act is a trade barrier. This means that when the United States negotiates free trade agreements with our, our partners, that they often say, uh, okay, um, we'll give you access to our market in exchange if you know you um, open or remove barriers, including the Jones Act, um, things that we'd like to export to you. So, for example, in 2005-ish, the U.S. negotiated a FTA with South Korea. South Korea builds a lot of ships, and they said, um, please do something about the Jones Act. And the U.S. said, no, Jones Act, we're not taking it off the table. And the Koreans said, fine. Well, you know what? Uh, you wanted access, expand access to our rice market. You're not getting it. So U.S., you know, in that case, you know, U.S. farmers suffered the effects of the Jones Act. So that's yet another cost to consider. And again, unfortunately, totaling that up, no one's done it. I have to think, given what we know, the costs are in the many billions of dollars. So... Where do we compare? Because we're not the only country out there that has some sort of cabotage laws or restrictions. Where do we compare in that? Are we on the looser end or are we completely uptight and it's ridiculous? Yeah, this is this is an argument you hear sometimes from pro-Jones Act folks who say, look, the jo I mean, the Jones Act is a cabotage law. Cabotage laws are not unusual. Um, among you know countries that have a coastline, of like, you know, 80% of them have cabotage laws. What's the big deal here? What they don't tell you is that among these cabotage laws, the Jones Act is an extreme outlier. In fact, in I think 2013, something like that, the World Economic Forum released a report in which they labeled the Jones Act the world's most restrictive example of a cabotage law. Uh, this is in large part 
due to the U.S. build requirement. No other country in the world has a requirement that all vessels used in that country's trade have to be built in that same country. Uh, I think they figured out that, you know, charging absurd amounts for new ships is a really poor way or ill-thought-out way of trying to promote your maritime industry and shipping. Um, and, and then also another reason I think it's an extreme outlier where we differ from other countries is that other countries will have a waiver system. For example, our neighbors Canada and Mexico both have a provision so that if you want to ship something from one part of Canada to another and there is no Canadian ship available, there's a mechanism where you can apply for basically a waiver to use or a permit to use a foreign ship. We don't have that in the U.S. We do have a waiver system, but it's only it's extremely limited in duration, I think like 10 days. And it can only be for reasons of national security. You can't just say, look, I want to move something from here from point A to point B. It doesn't have anything to do with the military or national security. I just want to do it. Um, and there is no American vessel. No, you can't do it. There's there's no mechanism. Um, so those are some ways that the U.S. differs from kind of global norms. But forget global norms. The Jones Act is crazy, <laughs> I find, even within an American context. You know, um, we have cabotage laws for aviation. You can't take a foreign airline, you know, between Seattle and any other American city, for example. Um, but you can use a foreign-built airplane, you know, an Airbus, no problem with that, Bombardier, whatever. Um, and, you know, same with trucking, any other form of transportation, we've decided it's fine to use foreign made capital equipment. But for some reason, if it floats, it has to be built here in the United States. Uh, so even just bringing the Jones Act more in line with our other cabotage laws, I think would be a, a massive step forward. How much traction have you had discussing this with uh, politicians, leaders, and, you know, people on Capitol Hill? I, you know, I, I know that Senator Mike Lee was interested in this a couple years ago. Is he still? Um, you know, is that a key part of your project at the Cato Institute or are you more about just, we put the information out and if people ask us questions, we're happen to ask them, but we're not, or answer them, but we're not going to go lobbying, so to speak. Yeah. So we do not lobby, you know, here at Cato, um, it, it, I think it violates our 501c3 status, but also just our internal rules, uh, prohibit it. So we don't advocate, you know, for a specific piece of legislation. So yes, Congress really ought to pass this or that, but obviously we have a perspective and we like to, you know, we don't just write things for the fun of it. We'd like to see some of the stuff get translated into policy changes. Um, uh, so, you know, you, like we've done briefings on the Hill, uh, about the issue where you just, you know, answer questions, things of that nature. Um, and what you get a lot is a lot of people kind of quietly will tell you, yeah, no, the Jones Act is terrible. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. But they're also mindful of the fact that if they go out against the Jones Act, that they'll face a lot of pushback. Um, so I, I suspect that to the extent your listeners have thought a lot about the Jones Act, there are a lot of people that um, know about the Jones Act, maybe don't have a deep familiarity probably think that to the extent there are conversations in D.C. about the Jones Act, it goes something like this. Uh, basically, the delegations from Puerto Rico, Alaska, Hawaii show up in D.C. and go, guys, the Jones Act, you know, it's killing us. We really ought to do something about it. And the other 48 states go, whatever, not our problem. Um, go buy some more ships from our shipyards. Uh, uh, tough luck. And in fact, it's it's much worse than that. Um, Don't you mean compete for the one ship available this year? Well, best <laughs> of luck whoever gets it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's actually much worse than that. The, the delegations from these places actually tend to be some of the most pro Jones act. Why is that? 
well, this this speaks to the power of special interests because those those um, states and territories most impacted by the Jones Act are also disproportionately home to interest groups that profit from from the Jones Act. Um, so, to give you some idea about this, this is less abstract terms. Um, in 1984, Alaska had a referendum calling it was called something like the Transportation Deregulation Initiative, and among its provisions, it called for uh, it called for it to make it an official duty of the governor to lobby Congress for repeal of the Jones Act and submit a report each year detailing what activities he undertook to try to get rid of the Jones Act. This speaks to how the people of Alaska feel about it. Uh, it passed something like 60 to 40, you know, overwhelmingly passed. Um, both Alaska senators and their lone representative are all pro-Jones Act. Uh, why is this? Well, I can't tell you, you know, you have to have a conversation with them to, to know for sure. But I do know that on Senator Dan Sullivan's um, election uh, webpage, he has a list of endorsements from, I think, 20-some organizations. And four or five of those are are maritime groups. Um, You know, it's about basically your average American doesn't know much about the Jones Act. But the people that do know about the Jones Act, that really care about the Jones Act, are the people that want to make sure it stays in place so they can continue collecting the rents generated by the Jones Act. So if you decide you're in Capitol Hill, you want to take on the Jones Act, you're going to make enemies. And very few people are going to come up to you and say, hey, good job at the Jones Act. You know, I really appreciate you standing up to those guys because most people don't even know it exists. Um, now, I do think the, the kind of the impression you get is that if a, a large coalition was assembled and people knew that if they confronted the Jones Act, they wouldn't be by themselves and they um, would have people standing shoulder to shoulder with them so that all the slings and arrows weren't just directed at them, uh, it might be a different story. Or a lot of people will say something like, you know, if it came up for a vote and I thought it had a good chance, I'll vote the right way. But no one wants to vote against the Jones Act, or against the Jones Act have that motion fail, and they know they're going to be on the receiving end of, of all these special interests trying to make life difficult for them. Um, uh, just anecdotally, like a couple of years ago, Matt Iglesias on Twitter, I think he had a tweet, something along the lines of, yeah, I don't understand why the Jones Act is still in place. It just seems like it'd be a pretty easy thing to get rid of. And someone responded to him and said, look, I used to be a Hill staffer. I worked for a member of Congress from Appalachia, I think. And we had these guys who would come to our office and donate to us. And all they said was, look, every like six or eight years or whenever the Jones Act comes up, just vote the right way. And you get endorsements, you get campaign donations, and all you have to do is maintain the status quo. They're not asking you to introduce any legislation to Jones Act even harder. Just keep things the way they are. So politically, overwhelmingly, the path of least resistance is to keep the Jones Act in place. One last anecdote. Uh, the one exception to that dynamic of people from Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and Alaska um, supporting the Jones Act is Representative Ed Case of Hawaii. He's introduced a few bills that have tried to exempt Hawaii from the Jones Act and the other non-contiguous states and territories. And he gave an interview a few years ago. He said, look, and he was asked about his stance on the Jones Act. He said, you know, I've actually been interested in this issue for a long time, even when I was a state legislator. And I just asked the question, I said, can we just study this issue and just see what kind of impact this has in Hawaii? He wasn't even pushing for a course of action. He just wanted to get information. And he said, he said it was like the sky fell down on him and people just were apocalyptic. Oh my God, how dare you talk about the Jones Act? And this is in a state where, you know, recent opinion polls show that among people that are aware of the Jones Act, like 90% want it either repealed or reformed. 
And yet this is a tough issue for him. Uh, that, that really, I think, speaks volumes as to why we are in the position we are. Wow. Um, you, you know, I'm, I'm a bit surprised uh, at the way you characterize the pushback because um, now this is my thought, but it's been said that the NRA's, and don't worry, we're not getting the gun <laughs> issue, but the NRA's, the NRA's real power comes from just the sheer number of members it has and active members and passionate members. Um, but overall, you know, the number is what's important there. Uh, is that is that the case with the Jones Act? Because, uh, you know, you talked about Senator Sullivan's website having four or five industries. Um, I I doubt many uh, uh, United States senators have similar issues or have uh, a ton of uh, employed shipyards in their in, in their districts or states. Excuse me. So w- where is that? It, it's hard for me to, to to connect where that influence is coming from, other than just an acceptance of not rocking the boat. Is that end of the day? And and then kind of yeah. on that, on that, because our, our one of our stated goals is defending conservatism, defending free markets, defending a lot of the principles you've laid out here. What would you say is if we're just as simple as moving the mind with facts, this would have been overturned or abolished a while ago. But right, you 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 change you change minds by changing the heart. So what what is sort of your you've gone around talking about this to a whole lot of folks. What's your sort of best pitch for um, why the Jones Act should be not just uh, uh, revised or changed if if we can, and, and if you have ideas for that, I'd love to hear them, but why it should be abolished. Yeah, <clears throat> I think essentially I, I look at it um, from the perspective that this is a law that gets in the way of domestic commerce. Um, this is a law that makes it more difficult for Americans to do business with other Americans. This is a law that puts American businesses on the back foot. Uh, you know, if I want to import a product, well, that import gets access to efficient international shipping. But Americans, they have to use expensive domestic shipping. That, that's a complete disadvantage. Um, you guys are in Washington State. For decades, the uh, the lumber industry in Washington State has complained about the Jones Act. and said, look, we want to send lumber to the East Coast or to Puerto Rico um, we're in a real disadvantage versus guys right across the board in Canada. They can all use, you know, far less expensive, far more competitive shipping than us. So, you know, this is, again, you know, as I kind of suggested earlier, I think it's a, arguably an anti-American law that just it, it hurts Americans' abilities to trade with each other. Um, and then, but also there's, a, you know, the national security component. And I would also make a pitch for changes based on national security grounds. Right now, I think a lot of people would agree that uh, the U.S.'s biggest geopolitical rival is China. Uh, any rivalry with China, any certainly any conflict with China, and God forbid it comes to that, is going to have a strong um, um, – the maritime domain is going to have a strong uh, component of, of, of that conflict. So we absolutely need to have a strong maritime sector. We need to have the ships available. Is this working? Is this accomplishing that goal? Are we in a better position or worse position because of this? Uh, you know, at a bare minimum, I think if, if Americans could get new ships at one quarter, one fifth the price, probably have a lot of more ships. We'd not only have more ships, we'd have newer ships. Those seem like good things you'd want to have strictly, forget the economics, strictly from a national security perspective. Um, the fact that, you know, we talk about LNG, uh, but also we have a similar dynamic with uh, oil and petroleum products um, last year we announced a sanctions on Russian imports of Russian oil. Well, why were we importing Russian oil? 
part of it, you know, the, the Philadelphia Inquirer did a story about a local refinery in the Philadelphia region. It's something like 29% of the oil they imported was from Russia. And it's a similar grade of crude is what's coming out of the Gulf Coast. Why? Well, the article explicitly states the cost of U.S. flag shipping as being one of the reasons they are buying all the way from Russia instead of from um, from from Texas. So again, uh, I don't want to get too much into this, but you know, I think that you know, relying on your geopolitical enemies um, for energy when we have an abundance, how is that in our national security interest? So on national security grounds alone, does this make sense? Does this make America better off? Does this make us better prepared? Um, so I, I think it's it's highly dysfunctional. And in, in normal times, you can say, well, that's an annoyance. But again, if we're in an era of... Um, we want to have you know, improved domestic supply chains. We've you know we've seen the importance of supply chains during the you know during the pandemic, mm-hmm. and uh, we're preparing for a potential. You know, we're certainly in a rivalry with China, and we want to have a strong fleet available. Is this working? And I, I it's hard for me to come to any conclusion other than the no. Um, and to go on a little bit, you asked about so what are alternatives? What what can we do better? Um, obviously, we we've been talking about this in fairly binary fashion. Do we keep it? Do we get rid of it? I fall heavily, obviously, on the repeal side. But uh, there's all, you know, the whole spectrum of options between maintain the world's most restrictive cabotage law and have no cabotage law. And again, at a minimum, I think we should do things like institute that waiver system so that if there's no American ship, you can use a foreign ship. I mean, LNG, for example, this is 100% downside, zero upside. We're not building these ships. We don't. No one's working on any of these ships. It, it's 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 protectionism for nothing. It's protecting something that doesn't exist. Um, that seems like a really logical starting point. And then also the U.S. build requirement: um, building two or three ships a year in a good year that are dependent on foreign components uh, in exchange for having a smaller and older fleet than would otherwise be the case doesn't seem to be to be a wise trade-off. And again, forget the economics there purely from national security. Is that smart? Um, is that working for us? Uh, we should reflect on the fact that no other country in the world does this, you know, um, are, are we right? And everybody else is wrong. I, I doubt it. Um, you know, I think we have to ask ourselves, by what metrics is the Jones Act working? And if this is success, exactly how bad would things have to get before we call it a failure? And if there is no, if because if that doesn't exist, if there is no point where you say, yes, this is a failure, then this is no longer a policy. This is a religion, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think if anyone takes an honest, uh, dispassionate uh, examination of this, they inevitably come to the conclusion this is not working. This is dysfunctional, and we can absolutely do better. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head because you know I, I, we're a conservative organization, and so obviously we've been discussing how desirable it is would be to repeal the Jones Act. But you know we're we're all about incremental change in the due course of time, and so I, I think that it makes eminent sense to have the first step be, hey, how about we study this issue? Like, let's do a cost benefit analysis, and then. Um, yeah, like if if we were to remove the domestic build requirement and specifically allow non-contiguous parts of the United States to have exemptions and and the LNG idea, as you said, you know, we're we're protecting non-existent jobs on non-existent ships with that. So it 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 makes zero sense in that regard. So um, 
But if we were to stipulate that the stated purposes of the Jones Act are indeed desirable, if you mentioned one thing at the very beginning of our conversation, um, maybe some sort of direct subsidies. Have you thought at all like what it might look like if, if there were no Jones Act or if we were starting with a clean slate? Like, What would we do to have a healthy merchant marine and, and to have domestic build capabilities here? Because, you know, Ken and I had talked about this before, you know, we don't just assume things will happen just because there is a market out there. Like we don't have um, uh, chip capabilities that we we would like uh, compared to like what Taiwan has. And so we do have a healthy plane building e- economy, but um, what would that look like in your mind? Do you have ideas, direct subsidies for merchant Marines or for building ships or, or having direct, direct control for the Department of Defense over some sort of managing of uh, building ships or something like that. What, what would that look like? You asked if I think about, if I ever think about, you know, what the world would look like without the Jones Act in place. And the answer is I think about that every day. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but yeah, but, but to your goals. point, <laughs> to your point. Uh, yeah. What, you know, uh, how there's do we no more war. No one goes hungry. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do we realize these, these goals in the absence of the Jones Act? What is this, alternate libertopia uh look like yeah and yeah but i have a few thoughts there so yes on the the ship front we want more ships then let's pay for them um as i mentioned you know this isn't pie in the sky thinking this isn't me coming over with crazy libertarian solutions this is the status quo we do this right now through the maritime security program in fact um, within the last year or two, we've instituted yet another um, one of these subsidies programs uh, called the tanker security program the military realized we don't have enough tanker ships to provide the fuel that the military would need to consume in times of war. To try to close that gap, they institute a new program that pays uh, tankers, I want to say, six, six and a half million dollars, something like that per year. Uh, it's 10, 10 tankers. I think they may have expanded 20. Uh, these are all foreign-built tankers, non-Jones Act tankers. Um and that generates ships and generates tankers. I think this is the approach. You go to the military and say, guys. What do you need? How many ships do we need to have in reserve? And then we give them that. And the military pays for it. Um, I think, frankly, Jones Act folks don't want that for any number of reasons. But one, they don't want the cost to be transparent. They like the fact that right now we hide the cost uh, through the status quo. You know, I'm reminded of there was a paper published in the 1990s that kind of speaks to this. And it says, um, I have in front of me, it says, the role of obfuscation in the administration of dumping and countervailing duties regimes is well known and well documented. The same cannot be said for U.S. maritime policies. Taken as a group, these policies are on a higher plane of protection. The obfuscation is almost total. And I think that really speaks to the general approach is hide the ball. We don't want cost-benefit analysis. You know, hide the costs. Uh, they like operating in the dark. Um, so let's let's... You know, let's stop doing things that don't work and let's do things that do work. If we want more ships, let's pay for the ships and have the military pay for it out of their budget. And beyond being more effective and transparent, it would also just be more, it would just be fairer. Um, to the extent, again, the Jones Act succeeds in generating these ships, it's used disproportionately, wildly disproportionately by folks in non-contiguous states and territories. You know, like I said, every container ship operates there. Um, uh, all the there are, I think, eleven crude tankers that operate between Alaska and the West Coast. Um, so you know, at least half the ships in the fleet operate in the non-contiguous states and territories. 
And that's like 2% of the population. So to the extent the Jones Act is generating these ships, we're basically taking a huge part of the bill and shoveling it onto 2% of the population. And then within that 2%, I think most egregious, we have Puerto Rico, which is you know, U.S. territory, has no voting representation in Congress. You know, they have one non-voting member in the House, no senators. They can't vote for president. They have a 40 40- yeah, half their people are in poverty. poverty yeah. rate. Yep. Yeah, and we're subjecting them to the world's most expensive shipping. That's crazy. I mean, again, set aside the economics, set aside national, just fairness. Is that right? Does this seem like a wise approach, a, a just approach? Um, I think the trickiest part is with the, on the shipbuilding side. Uh, we used to have something called construction differential subsidies. Basically, the government would pay up to half the cost of ships built. They were used internationally, not Jones Act ships, and they scrapped that or they defunded it back in the early 80s. So you could bring that back, but I think subsidizing, just saying, okay, we'll, you know, we'll cover the, the, that delta between U.S. and foreign shipping costs. Well, that's a recipe. There's no incentive there to try to cost control or try to get more competitive. I think, frankly, we need to kind of reconstitute or reconceptualize what constitutes the defense industrial base. And we need to think about the fact that Japan and South Korea are two of the biggest shipbuilders in the world. They're number two and number three. Uh, the Europeans also have a sizable shipbuilding industry. These are our allies. This is not China. Um, and, and and leveraging some of their capabilities. Um, because, yeah, it's nice to be able to build new ships when, when a war kicks off. It's also really nice to have ships at the ready, ready to go. And not, you know, like a, a destroyer, according to Huntington Ingalls, which builds them on their website, it says it takes four years to build these things. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a wise policy to to, to build them now and have them ready uh, rather than, you know, have the capability that, you know, theoretically, if a war, you know, with China comes to pass that some years down the road, we'll have a fleet to deploy. That doesn't seem very wise or, or smart uh, to me. So those are, you know, I don't know if that's a complete answer to what you're thinking about, but um, those are some of the thoughts that I have about how we meet our national security obligations um, while also relieving ourselves of the burden that is the Jones Act. Yeah, well, that really appreciate your time here. And I know we're coming up over an hour. It, it, I, I could talk about this all day and I know you already do. So, um, but I well, didn't, we didn't even uh, get to, to sugar. We didn't or, get to sugar. Uh, or, or, <laughs> another or, podcast. We're dredging. Um, or even dredging, yeah. Or, oh my goodness. Or even passenger ships. We're, to, you know, that's another. Uh, that's Washington. Right. Well, which is very relevant to you yeah. guys in Washington State. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to go as long as you want to. We can we can talk about this for a while. Well, I I do want to, um, and maybe maybe we can touch on that briefly if you have time. But um, yeah, I did want to read a quote from uh, I found in so in 1922, Columbia University published a collection of essays that uh, political science essays, and one of those was written by. Uh, Senator Wesley Jones, who at the time was um, also the chairman of the Commerce Committee. And so he wrote nine pages discussing the benefits of of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. And he almost goes section by section, but, you know, somewhat ironically skips over section 27. But at at the very end, he says that, um, I had something to do with the drafting of our Merchant Marine Act. I know the spirit that moved those who wrote it. Partisanship had no place in its consideration. We acted as Americans and not as partisans. Every word, every line, every paragraph, and every section was written solely in the interest of the United States. We seek to assure our people equal treatment, square dealing, and a fair chance in the world's carrying business. With this, they can hold their own with any ships. 
There might be provisions in the act that ought not to be there. Experience will show them and they will be removed. There are many things that should be added and I hope this will be done. Destructive criticism alone will encourage and aid our competitors. Constructive criticism will help us. If every American will place the nation's good above individual welfare, think, talk, and act Americanism, and give wholehearted support to the law passed to aid the United States and uphold those who administer it solely in the interest of the United States and its citizens, we will have an adequate merchant marine that will secure our own interests and promote the world's welfare. So especially that section where I sort of raised my voice, um, where there are provisions in the act that not ought to be there and experience will show them and they will be removed. Here we are over a hundred years later, and it's still the status quo. Um, even it feels like Senator Wesley Jones is calling for us to take action on this. Um, so, but as you said, it's, uh, harder to get things out of there once it's been passed. So. Yeah, I you know, first off, I applaud your research. Um, I've read that. It's been a long time. Uh, you're jogging my memory here. Uh, yes. Uh, so, Senator Jones, I, I, yeah, he even he arguably lays out the case for the repeal of Section 27. I also had to laugh a bit um, when you were talking, you know, something he had very high minded reasons for for every uh, every bit of this bill and um and this is all uh, aimed at uh, improving the welfare of the country um, and, and, and no parochial goals. But right, of course, that's right, not yeah, true. Right. Yes, that's not exactly. true at all. Uh, you know, the Section 27 it was all about rewarding Seattle based shipping companies that didn't want to compete with uh, companies in Canada, shipping companies out of Canada and the Alaska trade. That's the entire reason we have it. When Senator Jones made his first public appearance, uh, several months after the Merger Marine Act of 1920s passage, sitting right next to him was a representative from the Pacific Steamship Company, who, by the way, is the guy that in testimony before Congress during these hearings before the Merchant Marine Act's passage, he proposed the Jones Act. He, he basically said, we think it'd be a good idea if you pass this legislation. Um, and if you look at the Jones Act, you know, look at what was proposed by the guy from the uh, Pacific Steamship Company, it's like 90% the same. Um, so, yes. Which makes me skeptical that all right. the other sections were entirely uh, written um, with just just uh, with the, the aim of uh, again the the higher good of what's best for the country and not certain uh, special interests. Yeah, there there's definitely some fluff in there. But um, yeah, if if you have time, would love to hear just a quick quick synopsis of um, you know the passenger was it. What's the name of the act? Passenger uh, Vessel Services Act. Yes, yes. So, um, and specifically, yeah, with the example of, let's say you want to go on a cruise from Seattle to Alaska. How would that work? How would that work? So the issue is you want to go on an Alaska cruise. You're leaving from Seattle. Uh, you are going to get on a ship that is foreign built. So first of all, the PVSA, it is basically the Jones Act, but for the transportation of people rather than stuff. Um, so this mainly applies to ferries and cruise ships. If you get on that cruise ship in Seattle, it's going to be foreign built, foreign flagged. There is only one PDSA compliant uh, ship, uh, large cruise ship in the world called the Pride of America. It operates in Hawaii. And even that ship was actually built in Germany and got a special exception from the U.S. Congress uh, to operate in Hawaii. Um and so, so how do you how do you how do you get around this? Well, the way you can get around is you turn basically you turn your voyage 
into an international voyage rather than a domestic one. So uh, if it starts, you know, it starts in Seattle and stops in Seattle. And if you hit a foreign port on the way, you're okay. So everyone stops in Canada, I think typically I think for four hours, I think it's the minimum they need to stop to check that box and say, yes, we went to a foreign port um, and pay the port fees and all the rest and then continue on their way. Uh, this was a real issue during the pandemic when Canada closed their ports to foreign, to, to cruise ships. They said, we don't want these cruise ships full of, you know, potentially uh, COVID stricken people into our ports. You know, this is a, a vector for disease. Uh, stay out. Well, that's a real problem. For the cruise industry, it's a real problem for Alaska, which derives something like 60% of their tourism revenue comes from these cruise ships from, from uh, cruise season. So the Alaska delegation, which is fully committed to the Jones Act, all of a sudden pushed Congress uh, to say, can you exempt us from the PVSA for basically the cruise season of, I think it was 2021. And they did. Uh, and so during that year, uh, they were able to skip Canada spend more time actually seeing Alaska. I imagine that was a good thing for the Alaskan uh, tourism industry. And since we've gone back to the status quo ante, we are stopping in Canada. Um, I, I remember reading there's a there's a good PVSA op-ed out there in the LA Times a few years ago, where the author said that the Canadian government actually lobbies to, to maintain this law, uh, which is is totally crazy. Um, so we're actually pushing dollars and economic activity uh, abroad, and they love it. You know, usually foreigners hate American protectionism, but here we have it where they like it. I got to think the Russians and others like our prohibitions on basically, you know, transporting LNG domestically. Uh, I've also seen, you know, like an offshore wind, some of these wind farms, uh, the, the to get around the Jones Act, they will uh, take these installation vessels out of Canadian ports and go all the way down to like Virginia and then turn around 800 miles each way but they can get around the Jones Act. So we're driving more activity to Canadian ports. In fact, I even read that they're taking rocks from Canada and dropping them at these uh, offshore wind sites because they can't use American rocks because they don't have the proper uh, vessels to transport them. So Canada's really making out like bandits all its maritime uh, protectionism. But yeah, that's the PVSA. Same deal with uh, Hawaii. You know, if you want to go to Hawaii from the West Coast, they all stop in Ensenada, Mexico uh, on the way back so they can make that an international voyage. So another, uh, and then also there in Washington State, you guys have the ferry system. Yep. They're yep. trying to build new ferries. Uh, they have an aging fleet. Over there in Canada and Vancouver, they have BC ferries. They buy uh, not all, but like I want to say eighty percent. The vast majority of their new ferries have been foreign built. I think from Poland, a lot of them, and they get a much better price. They have a much newer fleet. Meanwhile, you know, I read earlier this year that Washington State ferries they went to uh, the local shipyard there in Seattle and said. So we think a new ferry should cost about $200 million. What are you guys thinking to build a new ship? And they came back and said, yeah, um, $400 million is what we're thinking. Uh, so that's where, so you guys are, are paying out the nose for new ferries, um, you know, because of this law. And the ferry system isn't exactly running like a stopwatch up here as well. So it has bigger problems beyond that. But um, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a, an absolute pleasure. Um, if, Again, it, it, it's hard to find this enjoyable when it's such a frustrating topic, but it, it's, it's like watching a, a train wreck, I guess. Um, can't or Just can't take your eyes off it. So um, <laughs> really appreciate your time. And uh, I want to let everyone know that they can go to cato.org to learn more about the project on Jones Act reform 
And you can follow Colin on Twitter at CPGrabo. Uh, that's C-P-G-R-A-B-O-W. And uh, of course, you can find the book, The Case Against the Jones Act on Amazon, I think Apple Books, and also Barnes & Noble. And then um, I think I saw it on Thrift Books as well. So um, Colin, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, guys, thank you. Uh, really enjoyable discussion. Lots of great questions. You guys have obviously done your research. To clarify, I don't get a cut from those book sales, <laughs> so buy it um, for its own sake. You're not doing me any favors, but by all means, I hope you do read it and enjoy it. Uh, I really enjoyed the discussion, and yeah, hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, would uh, would love to talk sugar sometime. Really appreciate it. All right, guys, take care.